Well, let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that we uh, can be here today together to hear and learn from your word. Our Lord, we pray that you would uh, work in our hearts this morning. Uh, we pray that you would open us to your word and what you have to say. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you created us, men and women, different, uh, with different roles, different responsibilities. We pray, Lord, that you would help us understand those particular roles for us and that we would fulfill those roles joyfully and experience the joy that comes from fulfilling the roles you've given to us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So if you'd like to open your Bible, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And this is a... uh, Fairly controversial passage. I'd I'd like to be able to say it's not controversial in the Reformed Church, but it is in some branches of the Reformed Church controversial. And so we're going to be going through this passage verse by verse, not quite word by word, but verse by verse, uh, discussing it, and hopefully we'll see what the Lord is teaching us today clearly, and we will... Accept it. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 says this, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So we're going to look through this uh, passage in, in detail today. And we need to look at some of the claims that are made about this passage. And the first one is really has to do more with the context in which Paul was teaching, not so much with the actual words here. The claim is that Ephesus was a radical feminist city. And it sounds like, okay, maybe that could be plausible. The only problem with that claim is that it's not true. So that's the only problem with it. But what they say is, well, because this was a radical feminist city, Paul is really addressing that particular problem, and because it was unique to that city, this doesn't really apply to other cities, and it really doesn't apply to us today. So we can safely ignore what Paul is saying here and kind of do what we want. Like I said, Ephesus was not a radical feminist city. It was pretty much a typical Greco-Roman city. The political, cultural, and religious elements were ordinary for their time. The magistrates were dominated by males. It was a polytheistic city with gods and goddesses, and most of the gods were served by priests, and there were some priestesses as well. Now, it's true that Ephesus was famous for, as the city of the goddess Artemis, and that women participated in the the cultic rituals surrounding that goddess. However, there isn't really anything about the city or the people in that city that that would lead us to believe that this was anything but fairly typical. For instance, in Acts, 
Luke's des- Luke describes some of the main people in Ephesus, including uh, the people who made the shrines, uh, those who were high-ranking officials, the city clerk, and all of them were men. There's no indication that Timothy's congregation, so Paul is writing to Timothy, and there's no indication that the congregation itself was a radical feminist congregation led by women. Women played uh, the usual roles that they would play in that city in that time. They were wives, they were mothers, farmers, homemakers, and other professions that are a little bit less reputable. In short, Ephesus was unremarkable in the role that women played in that city. Secondly, Paul was not writing especially to address women in the church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he tells us what his purpose is. It says, his purpose is so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's true that Paul addresses particular problems at Ephesus, but that's also true of every letter that Paul writes to a church or to a person who's leading a church in this case. There's nothing in Paul's letter that would indicate to us that what he's addressing when he, when he writes this passage is simply a cultural issue. And therefore, it has to be, it has to be uh, dealt with. It can't just be dismissed. And like we saw in verse 15, Paul is concerned with how they are supposed to live. And that's true wherever you are, whether you're at Ephesus or Philippi or Olympia. So let's actually take a look at the passage and go through it in some detail. He says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting in verse 8. And the emphasis here is not so much the posture, because lifting up holy hands is not the only way that you can pray, right? You could prostrate yourself on the ground. You could kneel, you could stand, or like Jesus often did, you could lift your eyes up to heaven and pray. So it's not so much the posture that Paul's getting at here, it's the piety that he's getting at. It's the holiness, the attitude of the heart. So he addresses men here, and then he addresses women, and he says uh, that they are to dress modestly. And he adds three uh, clauses, but let's let's actually read verse 9 and 10 here. It says, in like manner also, so just like the men, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So the first command here is to, is to dress modestly, uh, not with costly clothing. And really what he's getting at here is, again, It's not so much the clothing, it's the attitude of the heart. That is, that they not be given to sensuality, that they not dress in such a way that they attract attention to themselves or that they desire to attract attention to themselves. He then says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls. And gold and pearls were very expensive. And I think what he's really getting at here is don't flaunt your wealth if you have it. Don't draw attention to yourself. So kind of the same idea here as he was saying just before. And, and we know as well from Peter that he had the same concern. In uh, 1 Peter 3, 4, he says, true beauty. So he's, a, he's addressing the same issue. And he says, true beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. 
the sin is not in the clothing itself. The sin is in the attitude of the heart. And Paul says, dress yourself with good works. Okay? Again, he's not worried with the outward experiences as much as he is with holiness, and that holiness is expressed in good works. He wants them to act and dress in a way that adorns the gospel, that makes the gospel desirable and beautiful. Now, some have tried to claim here that the the braids and the gold and everything were cultural. Therefore, everything he says after this is also cultural and not applicable to our time. But I think as we've already seen, Paul's not really concerned with cultural things here. There isn't anything here that's unusual about Ephesus, about the way people were dressing. He's really concerned that people are going to abuse these things. And people do abuse these things, just like we abuse all kinds of things, right? Uh, Peter, again, in in 1 Peter 3, 4, he also doesn't condemn condemn clothing in itself. He condemns the attitude of the person. Uh, If we read that, he says, Do not let your adornment, adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So Peter is really concerned with the attitude of the person and that they be beautiful, not on the outside, but on the inside. So this is Peter's concern, and this is Paul's concern, that they labor not to be beautiful with the way they dress, not to attract attention to themselves in that way, but that they be beautiful in the heart. So we continue with verse 11. He says, let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. And the first thing I want to point out here is that he's being very countercultural here. He's being very countercultural in the expectation that women are going to learn. In that day, there were even people among the, uh, uh, in Judaism who considered it sinful for a woman to be educated. So when someone takes this passage and tries to say that men who think women should not be in authority are putting women down, well, no, we're actually raising women up because we expect them to be educated and well-learned and understand the gospel. So Paul may have made some people mad just by saying that women should actually be educated. They should understand these things. Furthermore, silence and quietness is not a demeaning term, right? Uh, In fact, being a quiet learner, like you are right now, is a a positive attribute. You know, I teach guitar for a living, and I don't have a lot of pet peeves in terms of being a teacher and stuff, but the one thing that I just, I can't handle it is when someone's playing guitar while I'm trying to teach them something. Like, they're looking at their fretboard and playing, and I'm like, what are you doing? So silence is a good attribute as a learner. This is not something to be... You shouldn't take this as being put down by being told to be, to be quiet. Also, we've seen uh, from 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 that silence does not mean never, ever, ever talking in the church. Okay? Silence in this context really means that women are not to be teachers but learners. He says they should learn in silence and with all submission. And all, all submission clarifies the why of why are they supposed to be silent while they're supposed to be learning in all submission. They're supposed to cultivate 
a spirit of, submission, uh, of submissiveness in the church. And he continues with kind of along the same, the same lines here in verse 12. He says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, some have tried to argue that uh, the, the verb here, uh, permit, I do not permit. Well, I say, well, this is a present tense verb. And so what Paul's really saying literally is, I am not permitting. Okay, I'm not, right now, I'm not permitting. But I could, I could permit it in the future at some point. That's kind of the argument that they make. And the only problem with this is that it's grammatically totally unreasonable Remember that when we're interpreting Scripture, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so if you're going to interpret that verb, of this present tense verb, that way, that means that you have, to, you have to interpret other present tense verbs in the same way. And if we do that, we run into some problems. Okay? There's 111 present tense verbs, just like this one in the pastoral epistles. So these three, three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And uh, we would have to reinterpret all of those verses according to that hermeneutic. Okay, that would mean that maybe God no longer desires all people to be saved. Okay, that's in 1 Timothy 2.4. Maybe the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16 is no longer great, because that's a present tense verb. Maybe there is no longer great gain with godliness and contentment in 1 Timothy 6.6. So do you see why that's a problem? I hope that makes sense. He continues, I do not permit a woman to teach. And now, some would argue that, well, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that he doesn't want women to teach carte blanche. He just means that he doesn't want women to teach error. Okay? And the only problem with that is that that's not what the verse says. Right? Uh, obviously, he doesn't want anyone teaching error. When you, think, when you look at a verse and you think that you see something there that isn't there, you're probably wrong, right? Unless you have other verses that shed light on that verse, okay, that makes sense. But if you take a verse and you see something that isn't there, you might want to double-check yourself, okay? So that's not, that isn't actually there, and... Uh, what the argument, the argument goes, well, I don't want women to teach error because women were not educated. And the second problem with that, I know I said it was the only problem, but there's more problems with it than just that. So. The, the second problem with it is that women there were not uneducated. Paul had actually been there for three years. He said, I was there for three years teaching you night and day. So that whole church in Ephesus was educated by Paul the Apostle. So it's not like they were ignorant of what he, had, what he was teaching. The next problem is that Paul does not use the word for false teacher in this verse, whereas in chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 6, verse 3, he does use that word. The word here uh, for teaching is almost always used in a positive sense. It's almost always used in the sense of teaching the gospel or teaching the truth or teaching good things. The only exception is in Titus, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, teaching the things that they should not. It's very obvious that he's using that in a negative sense. Every other time he uses this, ver- this word, it is a positive for teaching the truth. And then thirdly, or fourthly, actually, why 
would Paul warn women about being false teachers and not also the men? Doesn't really make sense, especially when Paul is actually mentioning false teachers in this context by name in his other epistles as well. So there's a lot of problems with that that would lead us to believe that that is not really what he's getting at. He's not getting at merely not teaching error. He actually means that women should not be teaching in the church. The next phrase we have in this is, or to exercise authority over a man. Now, again, we have to deal with the argument. So some people try to argue this really doesn't mean authority. It actually means domineering. So he's really just saying, don't exercise domineering over men, or don't be, don't be domineering over men. And again, this doesn't make sense for a number of reasons. First of all, why would you warn women against being domineering and not warn the men? Especially when he's writing to a man who's leading this congregation and the other false teachers, like I said, he names them by name and they're all men. Second, teaching authority are, are, are so closely linked in this verse. And, and I mean grammatically they're linked to each other in this verse that they most they must both either be a positive or a negative. And what I mean is that either Paul is forbidding teaching error and domineering, or he's forbidding teaching and having authority over men. And we believe it's the latter because the word for teaching, like I said, it's almost always used in a positive sense. And there's no direct object connected to that command. I do not permit a woman to teach. It doesn't say to teach error or to teach about whatever. It's an open-ended phrase. And then, again, we'll get to this later, but Paul gives his reason for the the prohibition in verse 13. Thirdly, the word used there for uh, authority is actually only used, if Strong's Concordance is correct, it's only used one time in the New Testament. Okay? can't remember the term for that, but anyway. Uh, it's only used one time. Hapaxal, yes. It was on the tip of my tongue. I'm not going to try to... I actually... Yeah, anyway. Uh, so so the, the word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, and so people say, well, this means domineering. Um, it's, it's not really authority. It's just being domineering. The problem is that there isn't anywhere that we can find where it actually means that. So if we look outside the New Testament, it means to rule or to control or to act independently. It doesn't mean to domineer anywhere else. So if that is what it means, we don't know why it means that or we don't know where we're getting that from. That, that's made up. There's a, and there's also actually two commands in view here, not one. So women are prohibited from doing, doing two distinct things uh, teaching isn't the first one, and having authority over men. So we could summarize the verse like this. God desires women to be silent and submissive in the church, which means that women should not be public teachers over men or exercise authority over men. Now, after stating this, we look at the next two verses, 13 and 14. He gives the reasons for the prohibitions. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The for in the verse, for Adam was formed first, that tips us off that Paul is going to explain uh, why he has just given this command. And of course, 
like every, every word in this passage, this is disputed. Uh, some scholars argue, well, the four isn't, he's not really explaining why he's giving this prohibition. This is just an illustration of, of a principle. Uh, this isn't causal. We would argue that this is causal. So I don't want you to do this because of this. And they're saying, no, that, that's not why. He's, that's not, but that is why. And so grammatically, this is doubtful again. The four following a command occurs 21 times in the pastoral epistles. And every one of those is either a command or the idea of a command. All of those require a causal sense. And this one's no different. If this one is different, it's the only one. And you'd have a, I think you'd have a very hard time arguing why that would be different. The, so he gives the reasons. The first reason is the order of creation. Adam was formed first. And he has a distinct set of roles and responsibilities, which we've talked about in previous lessons. He's the one who names and tames and protects. He is the, the leader. Eve was formed second, and she has a different set of roles, a distinct set of roles. She nurtures, she helps, and she supports. So Adam is supposed to be doing this. This is the way God has designed it, that Adam's supposed to be doing these things, and Eve is supposed to be doing these things, and that applies to all of us here. And when those things get confused or mixed up or swapped, bad things happen. Things don't work the way that God wants them to work. Okay? The second reason is that Eve was deceived and not Adam. And this could be interpreted a couple of different ways. The, the first one, which I find a little bit dubious, is that women are more, deceived, more easily deceived than men. Let me say that again. Women are more easily deceived by men. So I find this to be a little bit dubious because I've... Uh, come across plenty of men who are deceived. Okay. It, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily particular to one sex. I, so I know you can make an argument for it out of this verse, but I, I find it hard to believe that. The second possibility, and I think this is the more likely one personally, is that what happens when men and women swap their roles is things get messed up. Adam is supposed to be the head. He is supposed to be the one leading. He is supposed to be the one giving direction. And Eve is the one who's supposed to follow and support and help. And when Adam doesn't lead, they end up erring. Okay? Now, when you read the account in Genesis, uh, the, the narrative talks about Eve and the serpent. They're talking back and forth a lot. And you could almost miss it when you get to the end. It says Eve took the fruit and ate and gave to her husband with her. So... It seems like Adam was there with her during this whole event, and he was not doing the leading. So it's a very good example of things getting messed up when the, when the man does not take charge as he ought to. Now, however we understand that, whether it's the first or the second way that I described, we know this. This is not a cultural thing. Okay? There's nothing that would lead us to believe this is simply cultural and can be dismissed. This is grounded in the order of creation. It's grounded in the roles that God gave to Adam and Eve when they were first created. Paul doesn't permit a woman to take on these tasks because of how God designed us to be different and to fulfill our different roles. Now we come to verse 15, which I don't understand. Uh, The author of our book that we're going through does give two possible interpretations. And, uh, and this, is, this is a difficult passage to, to understand, I think, uh, universally. 
the, the first possibility is that the birth that's spoken of, let's actually read that verse so we know what we're talking about. Uh, it says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, the one thing we do know is that women are not saved because they have children. Okay, so we, if you've never had a child, that doesn't mean you can't be saved, right? Faith in Christ is what saves us, and only faith in Christ. No works attached to it. So we know it doesn't mean that. What it does mean, I'm not really sure. Two possible interpretations that our author gives us. The, the first is that the birth spoken of is not merely a, a woman, some, some woman giving birth, or a group of women who gave birth, but it is the birth, as in the birth of Jesus Christ, will be saved because of what Christ did. It, and it's, it's, it's plausible. The second interpretation offered here is that the salvation here spoken of is broader than the meaning of just what we usually call being saved, like the, the point of your salvation, being justified. Uh, childbearing is more representative of a woman striving to be what God has called her to be. Uh, and childbearing is obviously a uniquely female thing. Men don't do that. Uh, so perhaps that is what he's getting at, is that when a woman is submissive and, and strives to be everything that God has called her to be, by his grace working in her, she will be saved. I was considering asking for questions, but I'm going to continue so that I don't run out of time. So uh, at the end of the book, uh, there's an appendix at the end, and he deals with this question, and this, this is kind of where the Reformed party comes in here. Uh, the kind of the controversy in the Reformed Church, or at least part of the controversy. Should a complementarian church allow women to give the Sunday sermon? And maybe the uh, so you may maybe you uh, agree with that uh, you know elders should be men, deacons should be men, um, women shouldn't be ordained. We don't we don't find that in the scriptures. Uh, male male leadership at home is is vital and important. Uh, male male leadership in the church. Is a God-given duty. Maybe you agree with all these things, uh, but some complementarians would say, yeah, we do believe all these things, but women can still function in those roles under the authority of the session, they say. Right? And so it is possible that a woman could give the sermon on Sunday. And uh, I'll explain why that's wrong. Okay? Uh, maybe the most influential book on this comes from John Dixon. He's an Australian pastor. Uh, the book is called Hear Her Voice, A Biblical Invitation for Women to Preach. And he focuses on the this, this same passage, especially verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. And he argues, among other things, he argues there's numerous different speaking activities that, that we find in Scripture, right? There's teaching, and then there's preaching, and there's exhorting, there's reading, there's evangelizing, there's prophesying. And he's right in this. There, these are kind of different functions, and he argues, well, because there's these different functions, Paul is only forbidding women to do one of those functions. And this is a very technical, narrow definition that he gives. He says, teaching is the only thing that they're not to do. Okay? And it's a very narrow, very narrow in scope, as we'll see. So the question must be asked, well, if Paul did not include preaching the sermon as a part of teaching, which is what Dixon argues, he says... I'll get to it. Okay. 
So he says, basically teaching is this. Teaching is passing on the oral tradition of the, of the apostles. Okay, the oral, not the written tradition. Okay, so that, anyway, let me continue. He says, here, let me just read what he says. 1 Timothy 2.12 does not refer to a general type of speaking based on Scripture. Rather, it refers to a specific activity found throughout the pages of the New Testament, namely, preserving and laying down the tradition handed down by the apostles. This activity is different from explaining and, uh, and application of a Bible passage found in today's typical expository sermon. So when Pastor Titu is up here and he reads a verse... And then he explains to you what it means and how to apply it to your life. That's not teaching. Okay. Does that make sense? No, that doesn't make sense, right? Okay. Well, it seems to mean that, that teaching is, as he defines it, is the writing of the New Testament. Yes. It's yeah. the actual canonical writing of the New Testament. Yes, but the teaching of the teaching is not teaching. Correct. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, so, that, so yes. Um, so he builds his case in four different parts he says uh, number one there's different parts of speaking which we saw Uh, number two didosko that's the word for teach in the New Testament is a technical form that only involves a passing on of a fixed oral tradition which is now we know as the New Testament like Titu said Uh, thirdly in the New Testament teaching never means explaining or applying a biblical passage so that's where we depart from our understanding of teaching and then uh, fourth, the apostolic message is now intact in the New Testament, like you said, and no individual is charged with preserving it. Therefore, since teaching only refers to this act, no one teaches anymore. That's actually his argument. There is no more teaching anymore. Although he does contradict himself, which we'll see. So in the modern sermon, a person might tell you what the apostle taught, and they might comment on what the apostle taught, and then they might exhort you to do what the apostle taught, but that, that's not teaching at all. Okay? The problem with this interpretation is that when it's explained, people in the audience laugh. No. The problem is that, the problem is that yes, that it is true that there's different types of speaking in the New Testament. However, it's not so easy to just put this in this little box here, and then this one's in this box, and this, there's a lot of overlap going on here. Um, Paul didn't say he, per, he did not permit women to teach because that didn't involve teaching. That, that's what Dixon claims, right? He, if that is actually what Paul means, then Dixon is the first person in the last 2,000 years to actually notice that, Right? And this reminded me, as I read this, this reminded me of a, a, a former pastor of mine who said to me, if you discover something in the New Testament or in the Bible that no one has ever seen before, you're wrong. Okay? <laughs> so the problem with the view, really, the, the, the biggest problem is that the Bible itself tells us what teaching is, and it isn't what Dixon is saying. Okay. In, uh, in the, the uh, Old Testament examples, we have uh, Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 14. Moses taught the people God's words, which did not merely mean repeating it to them, right? He also explained it, said this is what God said, and this is what it means. And, and the Bible says that Moses was teaching them. And uh, th- remember, Dixon says this isn't teaching, but here we have uh, in, Sept- in the Septuagint, which is the Greek 
translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word didasco here, which is being used, and that, that just means teaching or to teach. In Second Chronicles, we have an example of the priests. Uh, some of the priests were teachers. Uh, Ezra in Ezra 7.10, it says that Ezra set his heart to study the law and to teach it. So he was taking the written word, and then he was going to teach it to the people. And the Levites as well, they would read from the law, and then they would explain it and tell people what it meant and apply it. And that is called teaching in the Bible. And we find the same thing to be true in the New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount was Christ teaching. And he's taking a lot of these allusions to Old Testament passages and things like that, and then he's explaining to them what they actually mean, not what they had been taught they meant, right? So the point here is, yes, there is overlap between teaching and exhorting and encouraging, and it's not so easy to divide those things up and into very technical categories like Dixon does. It, it does not uh, square with scripture, right? Jesus was called a rabbi, which means teacher, and he would often quote something from the Old Testament and then teach about it. Uh, Paul says that elders should be able to teach. If, if Dixon's definition is true, then no elder can teach anymore because we have the deposit of the teaching of the New Testament now. And he's saying that no one does that anymore. So how does that work? Uh, Paul says that older women should teach the younger women what is good. And surely this does not mean simply passing on an oral tradition that we already have in the New Testament. Uh, it certainly means reading a passage and explaining it and showing women how to live their life according to the scripture. According to Dixon, Paul tells Timothy to read from the scripture, exhort from the scripture, and teach, all of which would mean he's not actually explaining what the scripture means. Do you get that? So he, he tells Timothy, read from the scripture, exhort from the scripture, teach from the scripture, but that's not actually teaching. Okay? This teaching is only this one specialized thing. This also means that all scripture is good for teaching, but it's t the teaching part is never actually used when you're reproving someone, when you're correcting someone, or when you're training someone. In short, a, pa a pastor or an elder never reads a scripture passage and then exposits it, and we call it teaching. Right? That would never happen under Dixon's uh, definition. So I hope, I hope this is making sense. Uh, this very narrow view of Scripture passing on an oral tradition does not line up with what Scriptures say. It's unconvincing to make that narrow definition and then claim, well, because teaching doesn't actually happen anymore, that means a woman can actually preach the Sunday sermon. Preaching is not simply sharing. Well, I think in some churches it is. But really good preaching is not actually just sharing stories and a, and a moral, with a moral to it, right? Preaching is taking the scriptures and showing us what it means and applying it and showing forth who Christ is and teaching us about who Christ is. And this involves teaching. It involves teaching. And it involves authority. It carries authority with it. When when. A pastor preaches the word of God. He is speaking as though Christ is speaking. 
that's the attitude that we should take. That the Lord Jesus is speaking to us through this sermon. Also, by the way, why you need to be in church. And that is why a woman, Paul says, is not permitted to teach or to have authority in the church. Uh, Dixon actually does admit it's hard to, to draw a line, a definite line between what we call exhorting and what we call teaching, and there's often overlap between the two. And so he admits this, so then you have to ask, well, how could you hold, even if you did hold to Dixon's definition of teaching? He admits that there's overlap. So how do we know that we're not crossing the line, right? Uh, instead, it, it seems much more biblical to just actually believe that what the Bible says in First in Timothy there, when it says what it says, it actually means what it says. You know? um, okay, I've got two minutes for questions. How many questions? My mother. <laughs> Dad, you, uh, you were talking about a present tense verb. Yeah. And you gave some direct, uh, some examples. Of, yeah. And you started each one with maybe. And that suggested to me that um, the interpretation of the verb that we're not supposed to do would suggest that God doesn't remain the same. That he changes. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, yes, if these present tense verbs meant something back then, but if they don't mean the same thing now, that maybe God, that would mean God has changed. And yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so, that would be another reason. And then you have the problem of, well, if present tense verbs change in their meaning, do other types of verbs change in their meaning? And it just throws the scriptures into confusion. It does a great deal of violence to the text, right? So I think unless we have a very compelling reason from the scripture to say, yes, this was cultural, but it, it's, it's not really applicable now, I think you have, a very, you have to have a very strong uh, argument for that because I think you can run into a lot of errors by saying, well, that's just cultural. It doesn't apply anymore. So. Any other questions? Good. Let's pray. <laughs> Our gracious God, we thank you uh, that you are a God of order and not of confusion. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have given men and women roles uh, that you've graciously given to them. We pray, Lord, that we would embrace these roles uh, as men, that we would be leaders, that we would take up that challenge, and that we would lead our families, lead our churches, uh, lead our children into true godliness. We pray for our women, Lord, that they would be submissive, that they would love you, that they would teach their children, and, and uh, the younger women would be taught by the older women. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless our church and bless the rest of our day today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.